The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Before we get started with today's show, I wanted to tell you about another great ESPN podcast, The Woj Pod. Get the inside scoop on all the biggest NBA news as the biggest names in the game join ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski featuring in-depth conversations, breaking news reaction and analysis, and coverage of the biggest events on the NBA calendar. The playoffs are starting up here quickly, so be sure to check it out. Follow The Woj Pod as well as The Low Post wherever you get your podcasts. The NBA play-in tournament is happening May 18th through the 21st. It's a new exciting twist to determine who makes the playoffs in both conferences. The seven through 10 place teams vying for the seventh and eighth spots. Some teams are currently playing to avoid the tournament. Others are desperately trying to get in. At the end of the regular season, the seven and eighth place teams square off and the winner locked into the seventh seed. The loser plays the winner of the game between the ninth and 10th place teams. And the winner of that clinches the eighth seed. Got it? It's actually not that hard. ESPN Radio and ESPN is your home for all of the play-in drama Wednesday, May 19th and Friday, May 21st. Well, here's something interesting, people, to keep track of. We're excited to bring the Woj Pod and the Low Post, this silly podcast, together for a crossover virtual live show sponsored by Straight Talk Wireless. Hop on Zoom, and everything has to be Zoom still, and join us for a live recording on Monday, May 17th. That's right around the corner at 7 p.m. Eastern. We'll recap the regular season, look forward to the playoffs, and even discuss what may lie ahead in the offseason because you know Woj knows all. Registration is required. Space is limited, but it's free to join, head over to bit.ly slash Woj and Low. That's all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash Woj and Low, all lowercase. You can submit your Q&A questions when you register to join us for our virtual live podcast, the first one ever on May 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Register now at bit.ly slash Woj and Low, all lowercase. We'll see you there. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast on a beautiful Friday morning in the Northeast where it is the last weekend of the regular season and the Phoenix Suns made sure we had a lot of drama left in store for these last few days by squeaking out a controversial win over the Portland Trailblazers and that implicates the Lakers and when the Lakers are implicated well everyone is excited and and it is somehow finally Hall of Fame weekend with maybe the greatest class of inductees of all time and our friend Kurt Goldsberry wrote a wonderful piece on three of them today, so that's a perfect excuse to have him on. Mr. Goldsberry, how are you? I am great, Zach. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. That Phoenix, uh, on Monday on Get Up, I said Phoenix-Portland on Thursday is the juiciest game of the entire NBA season because Phoenix really does not want to see L.A. Nobody okay. should want to see L.A. in the first round, and they are sitting there with the power to at least put it in play that Portland, playing very well, mind you, sinks back into the seventh seed or potential seventh seed in the play-in and help L.A., the Lakers, that is, get up to sixth so Phoenix gets to avoid them for at least a round. And lo and behold, two teams went all out, down to the wire, controversial foul calls, everything, Devin Booker free throws. And now the play-in drama remains. The Lakers can get out of the play-in. They will be big Denver Nuggets fans in Portland's last game of the season. The Lakers have to go 2-0. and Portland has to go 0-1. And all of a sudden, the Lakers have a shot to get out of the play-in. Yeah, they have a back-to-back at Indy and at New Orleans. Very winnable games, uh, especially if their guys are playing. But I had my eyes on this brutal back-to-back for the Blazers all week long. They had at Utah at Phoenix in consecutive nights, and they almost pulled it off. You got to feel bad for them. You know, those are two of the best teams in the NBA. They have them back-to-back. 
there are seeding things at play that would really help them stay out of the play in themselves. And they almost got it came down to the wire, a call that, that will live in infamy in Portland for years to come. Um, but Hey, this is what the NBA had in mind, Zach Lowe, when they gave us the play in tournament here we are. And there are so many things left to be determined in the last few days of the regular season. And of course, Tuesday to Friday in the play-in tournament. We don't know any of the eight playoff matchups, I think, for next weekend. Uh, but, you know, th- there's so much at play. And there's other big games, not only the, the, the Phoenix game, but you mentioned, I think, uh, Golden State-Memphis this weekend. Essentially, Season finale. Becomes, it, it's going to cut the eighth seed could come down to that. Yeah, this is what we had in mind. And I, to all the haters out there, this is great. We have meaningful games before we normally have meaningful games. Uh, so I'm all in it. Yeah, I don't even understand the opposition to the play-in tournament. I don't, I don't, like I've seen some arguments made fairly cogently, and I just don't understand, like, what's, what's, what exactly is bad about this? Um, I, I get that this idea that we play 82 games and then somebody's playoff destiny comes down to one or two games can feel a little icky, but I, I don't really care. I mean, this is just better. This is better for the NBA. It's better that more teams are trying to win. Um, and this, I, I think they have done a good job at giving the seven and eight seeds, the teams that come in with an advantage uh, in the standings, enough of an advantage in the play-in tournament. You should be able to win a game. If you're the Lakers, you should be able to split against Golden State and like the Spurs or the Grizzlies. Like if you're trying to win the championship – <laughs> split split those games like it's not that it's not that big of an ask yeah and on the other side of it on the eastern conference it gives us a chance to get westbrook and beal and that wizards team that's playing really well all of a sudden they had an atrocious start they have very good excuses between injuries and covid stuff for a terrible start they have become definitely the hottest team in that play in bracket over there from that perspective it also gives a hot team in the second half of the season that ends at nine or ten a path to be a more interesting playoff team in the eighth seed. So, yeah, I, I don't know what the reasoning is. I'll tell you, if you're the seventh or eighth seeds uh, or place teams, as we should say, if you finish seventh or eighth, obviously this is an inconvenient new development uh, because normally you would just go to your playoff series. So there are going to be about four teams every year that hate the play-in tournament, especially those that can remember just getting in to the playoff bracket. But yeah, for for most of us, this is a no-brainer. This is good. We have meaningful basketball. Yeah, I, I need to feel bad for the Celtics who are 500 and frankly not, I mean, just incredibly Cratering. disappointing, even given injuries. It's funny. I was talking to some people in Boston this week. It's like the sky is falling in Boston. Oof. And you want to say like, well, They've had so many injuries and so much COVID stuff. Jason Tatum had a really long bout with it. They trade for Evan Fournier and like immediately he's out with COVID health and safety mm-hmm. protocols, struggling to come back from the virus and talking about how he feels brain fuck. It's like, yeah, it's like Kemba Walker is half the season didn't look like himself. It's not shocking that the Celtics have struggled, but it's like, I, I guess because of how deep they've gone into the playoffs in past seasons, it's it's like this is a catastrophe in Boston. I, I guess I just kind of didn't – it didn't register to me as catastrophic. It didn't register to me as catastrophic until the Jalen news. And that really just – it just – it just like, then you start to look back at the whole season and you're just like nothing has gone right for this group. And we think of them as one of the top four or five teams in the Eastern Conference just for a few years in a row now. It's starting to seem like that's not the case. 
um, because of the emergence of the other teams at the top, the Brooklyn's and the Philadelphia suddenly looks sustainable with it, with Doc Rivers there. And then, of course, uh, Miami looks good. And so you, you have uh, in Milwaukee, I should say. So the path to the top of the East is very hard, too, and getting harder. So in the context of that, what's happening in Boston is even more sort of catastrophic, Zach. Like, is this team even built to be a contender in the next few years if everybody's healthy? I got to tell you, you mentioned Miami. You know, I wrote about this today in my in my Coach of the Year segment of my awards ballot, which is out. Um, I didn't have Spo in the top three. Just you know, what it's hard. It's only three. Like, but yeah. I wrote like, how do they do this every year? Where every year, even the year they were forty one and forty one and missed the playoffs, the, the year they went ten and thirty one and then thirty one and ten or whatever it was, um, they just figure it out. I like as recently as two weeks ago, I, I just thought, you know, the Trevor Ariza thing, it feels like it's kind of a stretch. The Oladipo is injured. Like it just feels like they've been struggling to replace that Crowder piece. They're not going to figure out their identity. They're fighting themselves. Heroes hurt. Then he's healthy. Then he's hurt. Dragic is hurt. Then he said, and it just doesn't feel like it's going to click for them this year. And then bam, it clicks every year. They get to the end of the season. It's like, Oh, Miami s- seems to have found their identity. There is no coach. Not one, not one in the NBA who is better coaching to a season, whatever that means. It's a confusing phrase, but coaching to a full season, there is not one coach better than Eric Spolstra. No, you're, you're right. And he is the, he reminds me of the NBA equivalent of Tom Izzo. You know, I taught at Michigan State for four years, Draymond's four years, and I, I'll always remember the team always kind of struggling, figuring out lineups at Michigan State. And then by the time the tournament came around, Everybody was afraid of the Spartans. They were firing on all cylinders, and that's what the Miami Heat are. And, and while we're talking about the Miami Heat, Zach Lowe, how about Udonis Haslam? What a, that's, what a, what that's a, my <laughs> I, I really – I haven't read any of the postgame comments. I feel like it I, – I want it to be. I want it to have been premeditated. I want it to have been – Udonis is like, I'm not playing till we get to Sixers. And I'm just gonna fight Dwight immediately. Like I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna get ejected for like going at Dwight. I'm gonna put a finger in his face. I want Dwight, and that and I just wanted to have been premeditated because it was fantastic. It both, it was both hilarious and epitomizes the Heat in a weird way. Like they're here, they announce they're here, they go to the Sixers who are just like the Bucks were last year, and they get in their heads. And UD, UD, what a moment. I mean, it could be his last moment on the court as a Miami Heat player. And what a, what a memory that'll be. Uh, but yeah, broader point, Miami has this tenacity, this tendency to shape it up right when it matters, as we saw last year when they were the five seed and went all the way through. And guess what? They could be the five seed again uh, here in a few days, starting in the playoffs the team that nobody wants to see in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, the Hawks, the Heat, and the Knicks enter the weekend all tied in the loss column. And you'll be damned, Kirk Goldsberry, if on <laughs> Friday morning I'm doing the freaking tiebreakers for those teams and going looking at head to Because you know what? In 48 hours, I'll know the results. My brain can take a vacation and think about things like the Hall of Fame. But by the way, I just want a, a word on Dwight. I really hope he opens up in a really candid, honest way at some point in like the next 15 years, because there is a killer Dwight Howard profile to be written because like yesterday against Miami, 
Trevor Ariza wanted to fight him. Udonis Haslam. It's like everybody hates Dwight Howard. And there was that story from the bubble last year where they had the DJ and the pool party. And like Dwight was like the only one there wandering around the pool party by himself looking for friends. There's, I just, I need to know. I need Dwight Howard to like let down whatever guard exists. I just want to know about this life of he, he gets technical fouls every game. Um, uh-huh. I, I just need, I need to know more. I need to know more. Well, it goes all the way back to 2008. You know, the Heatles are secretly coming together in Beijing, and he was he was the outcast in that incredible group and the redeemed team. But yeah, I think like uh, everybody loves Raymond. No, everybody hates Dwight. It could be some sort of uh, sitcom or a documentary. Everybody's making documentaries about NBA players now, so maybe Dwight's uh, can can. It would be awesome, by the way, because he's had such a fascinating. Uh, career and here he is as an important player again on a championship contender so i'm with it but yeah there's something about him that obviously the arizas and the uds of the world who've been around him for a long time just really don't like well it's fitting we 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 transition from dwight to the hall of fame because you have a great piece today on this absolute loaded hall of fame class centering around three of the minimum 20 greatest players of all time and probably two of the 10 to 12 greatest players of all time, Tim Duncan, Kobe Bryant, and Kevin Garnett. And you have this incredible stat in your column and you have these beautiful animations in there about their signature moves. Absolutely. Who did those? Cause I, you know, I was going to, I was hoping you'd bring this up. So back on the Grantland days, Juliet Litwin would always decorate our pieces with these incredible artworks. And uh, you and I have had the benefit of having incredible illustrations on top of our pieces or throughout our pieces. But this gentleman's name is Walker TKL, uh, an incredible artist uh, that loves the NBA and does these beautiful animations. Look at my social feed or the article today uh, for examples of Walker's work and follow him. Uh, he, he really does. He has a great eye for this stuff and he draws these animations. So in the piece today, you're exactly right. We have Kobe's shot against the Suns in 2006 that right elbow buzzer beater uh, as rendered by Walker. And then we have Timmy's bank shot. And then we have a classic pick and pop by who else? Kevin Garnett. So yeah, we tried to, we tried to get some really good illustrations of some of the things that made these guys so special on the court and with a focus on how they scored the ball. Well, it's, it's interesting though. You have a, a, you know, Dwight jogged my memory because you have this stat in there that only three players in the history of the league, have been named to the all defensive teams 12 times and they are Duncan Kobe and Kevin Garnett. <laughs> now Kobe's last three, four were like, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Fair. Maybe a little reputationally, uh, but Tim and KG, I mean, it just, it just, it, the reason Dwight made me think of it is because Tim Duncan and Kevin Garnett, both of them are in the conversation for the greatest defensive player in the history of the NBA. Now combined, they only have one defensive player of the year trophy between them. That's Kevin Garnett's. Tim Duncan somehow, somehow went through 15 all defensive teams and did not win defensive player of the year one time. But when you talk about this conversation, it's like they both are in that conversation. Bill Russell is sort of the default answer, I think. Dikembe Mutombo is like the all-time leader in defensive player of the year. I think he has four, and Ben Wallace has four. Dwight Howard's got three, so he's got to be in the conversation, like it or not. And yeah. everyone will hold their nose. And Ben <laughs> Wallace, I mentioned Ben Wallace. Rudy Gobert could get his third this year. Draymond Green thinks it's him. But, I mean, Duncan and, and KG, I think, although your piece focuses on their signature offenses, offensive moves, it ends by saying, hey, reminder, 
these are three or uh, these two big men are are two of the six greatest defensive players. They're in the conversation for greatest defensive player ever. Olajuwon's name comes up too, right? But th- that's what we're talking about. Yeah, it's a reminder that defense wins championships. And, and, and it's one of my guiding principles when I look out at the landscape of superstars every year because there's still guys that are one-way superstars. But the truly great players who win titles in this league, that win MVPs and finals MVPs, whether you're talking about Jordan or LeBron or Tim or KG or Kobe, they affect the game on both ends of the court. Um Yes, I agree with you. Some of Kobe's late era uh, defensive nods were probably not deserved. But in the middle of his career, when they were dominating, uh, he was a badass on defense. (laughs) And Tim, if there's one player that should have a defensive player of the year award or three, it's Tim Duncan, who the Spurs defense was top five virtually every year. You could set your clock by it. It's what they were known for, and it was his defensive instincts. Uh, his willingness to play defense, his ability to get rebounds and protect the basketball hoop uh, made them uh, what they were. So, yeah, we talk about these guys a lot throughout the piece in their offensive prowess, and that's really fun to talk about. But make no mistake, if you want to be as good or as great as these three, these three individuals, you have to burn calories on that unglamorous end of the court as well, Zach. Well, it's interesting because, you know, there's been a lot written this year about uh, we've now reached a point in the NBA where if you look at the correlation to winning, offensive efficiency is now correlating more closely to winning than defensive efficiency. It used to be the opposite by a little bit and a little bit more in the postseason. And Kevin Pelton wrote beautifully about this th- this week. And I think it's tempting to take from that, well, defense doesn't matter anymore. And it's that's that's not the case. It, what that means is defense is harder now than it used to be, and it still matters just as much. The numbers might reflect that offense is, is prevailing, and that's true, but in relative terms, you still need to be uh, – unless you're Brooklyn and you're just setting the world on fire offensively, like d- even they will have a floor of defense below which they will not be able to win the championship. Just because defense is harder doesn't mean it matters less. No, I love it, uh, and I love Pelton's work on that. And it's it's definitely changing, like everything else in the NBA. But one of the things, and I think I stole this from you back in the Grantland era, one of the big pieces of conventional wisdom of the 21st century in the NBA is going up on trial this year with the Brooklyn Nets. And that is, do you have to be a top 10 or 11 defensive efficiency team to win the NBA title? Because literally every champion this century has been, I believe. Maybe there's one exception. It might be one of those Lakers teams at the very beginning. Well, the, of, the 2001 the Lakers, I think, are the team that famously dogged it in the regular season yes. and were like 20th. And then in the playoffs, they went, they just destroyed everybody. They, they nearly went won, undefeated. Yeah, the Iverson yeah. game was the only one they lost. Uh, they were an unusual team, to say the least. Certainly could play incredible defense when they wanted to. But yeah, I think that's going up on trial this year with the Nets who, to their credit, have gone from terrible to average on defense, but still don't check that top 10 or 11 box. So, yeah, and and if they do do that, Zach, I think poetically it means that defense uh, is sort of growing less important if a team like this Brooklyn team with Kyrie and with uh, James Harden on it uh, win the title. But that said, yeah, defense still matters. This year's Hall of Fame class includes three phenomenal two-way superstars. 
Let's talk about let's let's go through them and sort of share our favorite memories. And let's start with Duncan, fifteen time All Star, fifteen time All Defense, twenty six thousand four hundred and ninety six career regular season points. That's eighteenth. Poetically, it's about a, it's ninety nine behind George Gervin, the other sort of all time great Spurs scorer, um, five time champion. Honestly, sixth in points in the playoffs. Could you name the can you can do you think you can name the five players who have more postseason points than Tim Duncan? Oh man! Well, I would say Michael Jordan and yes. LeBron James and Kobe and yes. Kareem. Yes. And oh gosh, this is you're going to kill me. I can't get Durant. Nope, Durant uh, is eleventh all time in playoff points, and after on, this season, he will be he will be tenth. He will pass all time great Spur Tony Parker. It's fitting that you're not getting the fifth guy. Oh, you're trolling me right now. I'm not. Tra- I don't even know what trolling is anymore. But I'm not it's trolling. What you're doing to me right now? You're humiliating me on one of the no, no. You went four. You went, you went four for four instantaneously, <laughs> instantaneously, and like Kareem, that's a that's a reach back in time. And he's reach back. The guy you're missing, uh, who is fifth all time, is Shaquille O'Neal. And oh. I think you know, I, th- I I saw someone tweet about this this week, and I think it all the time. I think Shaq. Now, it's funny we say this because when you start looking at the 20 greatest players of all time, they're all so freaking good that it's hard to say any of them are underrated because you're looking above them on the list. You're like, oh, my God, who are they better than? I I do think Shaq, the perception that he was out of shape and disappointing and didn't care enough in the regular season and scheduled his foot surgery so he missed time and blah, blah, blah. It has made has made him underrated. I think Shaq is historically underrated. there was just nothing you could do with Shaquille O'Neal. Absolutely nothing. No, the list of players that were most dominant in any time in their careers during my life starts with Michael Jordan and then this Shaquille O'Neal around that 2001 time. <laughs> there was nothing you could do. He was, he was, he, he's definitely the greatest center of my life. And that is arguably the most important position in NBA history. But yeah, I don't, I think Kobe has become more iconic over time. And people forget that Shaq won those finals MVPs during the three-peat. Uh, he, was, he was the reason. Uh, they, were, they were unstoppable in that incredible three-year run. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on. Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. For the ones who get it done! Granger offers high-quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call or click Granger.com or just stop by. Let's talk about Timmy because you worked for the Spurs for several years. Obviously, five-time champion. Um, just, just as an example – 
2003 playoffs, the Spurs go through a good Suns team, a good Lakers team, and a very good Mavericks team, and then a good Nets, uh, a good, um, are they the Nets that year? I think they're the Nets that year. Um, Duncan's average for that playoffs, 24 points, 15 rebounds, five assists, and three blocks on 53% shooting. He wraps the finals against the Nets with a 21-point, 20-rebound, 10-assist, 8-block, almost quadruple-double. It's one of, you know, I think now people think of Timmy as this sort of like fun, like late-career Timmy was like this yeah. fundamental 16-8. and eight. Oh, look at him. He's all in the right places. He's always making like the smart deflections and this and that. Prime Timmy was a monster offensive player who could get you 35 and 15 on any given playoff, any given playoff game. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Late era, Tim wasn't as slow. He had that giant knee brace. Um, he was super savvy and super smart and was still a factor even in that last title run. Uh, but people forget young Tim was quick. Young Tim was strong. Young Tim was a killer uh, in, in those early finals against the Nets and even the Knicks series in the lockout year. Uh, he was the problem. He was the reason. He was the reason the Spurs were champions. Um, and, yeah, go back and watch young Tim Duncan footage on YouTube. It's insane. In fact, we put out a signature shots thing on YouTube, uh, me and, and Mike Ehrlich from ESPN, 10 minutes of Tim highlights, including a lot of bank shots. Well, that's uh, what one? you wrote about today. So talk <laughs> about the bank shot because that's what you wrote about today, and you have an incredible stat that I want you, I want you to be able to say about. Oh, Tim I don't Duncan's have it in front shots. of me. You do you have it in front of you? Somewhere I do. Yeah, but just you know. So long story short, he was using the window at a level and a frequency and an effectiveness that nobody else in the league was doing then, and it certainly is not doing anymore. I mean, the, one of the many things that's fading away in the modern NBA is the bank shot. And when you close your eyes, if you're like me, and you picture Tim Duncan. Uh, it's a left block, it's a spin move, and it's like a flat ball that ricochets off the glass and goes in, and people call it boring. Uh, but, you know, I miss it because it's gone. I didn't know when I was watching Tim do that for 19 years uh, that it would be vanishing from the game. And, you know, you asked me to come with a story about Tim uh, from my time, and I think it involves the bank shot. Um, Tim used to show up to open gym first player back every off season. And, you know, this team always had a deep playoff run into May, June. And Tim was obviously a big part of those runs, won MVP, some of those year finals MVPs. And the dude was the first guy back into open gym. And my favorite Tim story is after he retired, Zach, he would still come in. And that's when I was working with the Spurs. Uh, I worked with Tim on his last year. And then the first, the next few years I worked with the Spurs and I didn't expect to see Tim Duncan in the summer after he retired or the fall after he retired, but he would still come into the facility. And the Spurs are famous for filling uh, their video room with old college players that can double as sort of warm bodies for drills and pickup. And these guys, you probably heard of them with chip and stuff, but they wear these ugly yellow pennies over their gear and they're nicknamed like the yellow jackets or something like that. But they look ridiculous is all you need to know. And they're a bunch of old college players uh, and they, they're having the time of their life out there. Uh, the first year after he retired, though, Tim would start showing up and he would sort of work out. He'd pull out the gun, which is this hideous big net device that helps players rebound for it's an automatic rebounding machine and does a couple other things. But he'd still pull that out. and He'd still work on his bank shots. Act. This is the year after he was retired. And I would just watch him shoot and shoot and shoot. And uh, I'm like, 
man, it just struck me in those moments that this is what, this is what greatness looks like. But he would also jump into pickup games. And since he was no longer on the team, he'd throw on one of those, those yellow pennies. Uh, and he'd start playing with the video guys against members of the team. Uh, and this is like four months after he retired. He was still an incredible player. And I remember watching LaMarcus Aldridge and thinking, man, this guy, this guy got the short end of the stick. You know, Danny Green, Kawhi Leonard, Tony Manu are out there just torching video coordinators. <laughs> but LaMarcus has to deal with Tim on both ends of the court. And Tim was still the best player on the floor in some of those games. He could still post up, rebound. His defense was impeccable. He knew everything that was going to happen before it happened. But it was hilarious, and it was inspiring. And I think, like, Tim would coach the young guys in these games. He was like a player coach. Um, and, and, and the thing that really sums it up is there's that famous John Wooden quote that the true test of a man's character is what he does, I think, when no one is watching. And that has always stuck with me. Uh, and when I was doing the research for this PSAC, I called a bunch of my Spurs buddies and I was like, you got a good, what's your favorite bank shop? I was, I was fishing around for like somebody to give me like a specific bank shot memory for the piece. Uh, but Brent Berry was the one who told me, he's like, dude, my enduring memory of the bank shot is just watching Tim Duncan practice it over and over and over again at the practice facility. Um, and when you ask RC Buford for his favorite Tim story, he'll tell you about how Tim was always the first one in that facility every summer. And, and all of Pop and RC's stories, and I'll wrap it up with this, have one big takeaway. It's that he set the standard for those guys for two decades. He was such a pro, and that was evident not in the games when we were all watching him beat the, the Knicks in the finals or whatever, but when he was in that practice facility in West San Antonio. And that's what stuck with Brent. That's what stuck with RC. And after he retired, that's what was really burned into my memory of Tim Duncan is just that professionalism and his dedication to, yes, we're talking about practice. Um, and that is, for me, what made Tim so special is he was just setting the standard for these other guys. And Brent Barry, one of the great shooters of all time, is just st stuck with a similar image in his head of practicing Tim Duncan. So, you know, I think that's really what, what made Tim special as a leader uh, was his enduring dedication to the craft and, and not necessarily being a huge vocal leader, but leading by example in that practice facility. I love the idea of like 40 years from now, Tim Duncan's neighbors are sleeping at like seven in the morning. <laughs> like Tim Duncan's like 85 years old and they're, they're sleeping. It's like seven. It's a Sunday morning. I just want to sleep in. And they hear like bump, bump, bump. And like and someone rolls over and is like, man, Tim must be out there practicing his bank shots again. And they look out and it's like 85 year old Tim Duncan's on the left just for no, just because. He cares. About, by the way, you know who the great bank shot artist of the NBA is right now? Russell Westbrook. Mm. Oh, he there is, you go. He, he is the bank guy now. Um, that's that. He's one of the only guys left who makes frequent, frequent use of it. Are there players that should be shooting bank shots that aren't? I'm thinking like Embiid is a big left block guy. Um, for sure there are. For sure there are. That's what it's Jokic, there for. Jokic should, Jokic should be it. Jokic should be using angles that we've never even thought about before. He rules, don't even, rules don't even apply to what Jokic <laughs> is doing. He By the way, my favorite Spurs shot. Open gym story that I've ever heard was I got it when I was doing my big mono Ginobili Opus a few years ago. And it's from that same September Open gym where everybody is back. I don't remember what year it is, but um, 
Manu dives for like a loose ball, just dives into like a crowd of people, gets the loose ball. And I think the story is he like gets the loose ball and from his ass passes it to somebody on his team who scores and pop stops the scrimmage. And he gathers everyone around. And as you know, the cast of characters for these are like Spurs players, the video guys, some like straggling undrafted free agents that are trying to like make an impression. And Pop gives this big speech about like, you see what that dude just did? You see how much Manu cares about winning? Like, that's what this is about. That's what we're here to do. If you want to make it like that's the that's the thing you need to emulate. And then he stops talking and everyone's like, all right, he's done. And he turns back and he goes, Manu, it's September. (laughs) <laughs> Don't ever fucking do that again. And, every, and everyone just roared laughing. You know, it's funny you mentioned Tim's leadership because he obviously made a choice and it's fine and the Spurs are fine and this is what they do and this is their way. He made a choice when he was younger. I am really just not going to share much of myself with the general public and the media. Even now in the Hall of Fame, I think he's done one interview. And that's fine. That's his. That's why everyone's looking forward to his speech. Yeah, like what does his voice sound like yeah, for some right. people? But but. It just it makes me a little sad to hear these stories about Tim behind closed doors because and again it's his personal choice and it's what made him tick and when you're famous as he is you have to make choices to sort of like how do I want to function as this ultra famous person and that's what that was his choice and that's the way he coped. I just I feel like we just as basketball fans never got to see that and and that it's probably really cool to see you hear about his sense of humor you hear about his leadership. I just feel like we just never it's kind of a it's kind of a mystery to, to outsiders. No, you're exactly right, and, and the same goes for Manu and Pop. I would say, in the sense that you know, when you I go up to these guys, I'm like, your stories are incredible. The lessons you could teach young players are incredible. Like, go out there and share your experiences, share that wisdom, um, because you, you know, I, I, you brought up that Manu story, and I think it's fascinating because. Between those two guys, they had such an incredible, rich kind of leadership. And how could you come into that environment as a young player and be anything less than (laughs) trying 110% and dedicating yourself? Because these two gentlemen, who are among the most important players of the modern NBA's history, are busting their ass year in, year out, day in, day out. uh, And they led by example. So... That sticks with me. And then your point about Tim's leadership and his reticence, you know, he's such a special guy. He's a four-year college player. Like, he he just went about it differently. Basketball was not his be-all, end-all. He, he never bought into the whole ego thing um, that many of the other superstars did. Uh, and he continues to live that way. So, unfortunately for us, we're not going to get it. But I do want to emphasize that everybody should watch the ceremony on Saturday because we're going to get a pretty good glimpse. He will, when he does speak and he did it at his retirement ceremony, when he does speak, he speaks from the heart and it's candid and it's open, uh, but it just doesn't come around very much. Uh, but he has a lot to offer and a lot to say. And I, I for one, can't wait to hear what he says uh, this weekend at the ceremony. Very few. The last thing I'll say about Tim is you know, obviously there was this whole, everybody knew Tim Duncan was going to be amazing. Everyone, you know, tanked to try to get him. The Celtics <laughs> tanked to try to get him. Bill Simmons just Bill Simmons just heard that and like a shudder went down his spine somewhere in Los Angeles. Um, but you you sort of even with guys like Zion, even with LeBron, you kind of assume 
some rookie struggles are going to happen, right? Like their team might miss the playoffs or they'll shoot a bad percentage or they'll be crappy on defense. Like even the very best rookies, you assume like they're not just going to walk right in and be like one of the 10 best players. Like Tim Duncan walked right into the NBA, 21, 12, three assists, two and a half blocks, 55% shooting. He walked now, as you said, four-year college player. So he's not 19, he's 22, whatever. He walked, and I remember watching games that I was in college watching games, you know, Sundays in the lounge with my buddies, whatever the national TV games were, and being like, this doesn't happen. Like, this this is insane that this guy yeah. is walking into the league and he's like, I might be the MVP now. Like, like it just doesn't happen. No, you're exactly right. It is a four. He was a four year player, and that's a big note here. But so was Draymond. So so are some of these other guys that that didn't quite emerge right away into their Hall of Fame selves, but. You know, another big part of this trio, Zach, is the preps to pro legacy of both the other two guys. When Kevin Garnett came into the league, you didn't have to look far to find people saying he shouldn't be in the NBA, including Kareem, including some very prominent voices that said we should not be letting high school players come into the NBA. And they had the odds stacked against them. Uh, And Tim could have come in earlier. He didn't. Uh, And I think that's an important thing to remember. But as it relates to Kobe and to Kevin Garnett, these are two of the greatest players of all time, and they never played college basketball. They defied a lot of harsh skeptics uh, in the face of, of those skeptics, became great players, and grew up into men in those first few years. And I think we forget that with Garnett especially. That dude was really really doubted early in his career. Could he do this? And he did it. uh, And he became one of the greatest of all time. And now, you know, guess what? The league is looking at bringing high school players back into the draft. Uh, You know, so I think that's a really important point with this class too, Zach. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you wait until the last minute. Shame on you, by the way. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first Mother's Day or your fashionista mom who loves to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas, you can easily pick out something special to celebrate the both. You can shop by price anywhere from 25 bucks and under to 100 bucks and under. You can also sort by category like fragrance, handbags, more, or gift lists like for the mom who has everything pre-wrapped gifts, gifts for grandma. You can find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung smart TV. So what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th. That's very soon. It'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for your mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. The Low Post fans, listen up. Have you heard you can listen to episodes of this very show ad-free on Amazon Music included with your Prime membership? That's right. All your favorite The Low Post episodes can be heard on Amazon Music ad-free. But that's not all. You can listen to other top podcasts like First Take and Part of the Interruption ad-free as well. They also have favorite shows like The Daily, Part of My Take, and Up First, all without ads. You know what this means, uninterrupted listening, so no more cliffhangers. Amazon Music offers the most ad-free top podcasts, so we know they definitely have something for you. And it's already included in your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free, or go to Amazon.com slash low. That's Amazon.com slash low to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Yeah, so I think it's I think it's fitting on a number of levels that Garnett, Kobe, and Duncan are going in together because um, Garnett and Duncan are so. I, if there is a player that, in addition to Shaq, that I do believe is going to go down, is historically a little bit underrated. I think Kevin Garnett will be underrated. I mean, that guy. We don't need. I mean, we're going to talk about it now, but it's always been sort of one of the what ifs you see that's interesting is sort of the what if of what if you know. How do we think about their careers? How do their careers unfold if Duncan and Garnett switch places? If Garnett is drafted to a Spurs franchise that is the very best in the NBA and has had this one season mini tank job, you know, a good team that just is injured and whatever. So he walks right into a good team. And Duncan is drafted to this organization that is, let's say, less competent and less stacked with talent. How do we think about their careers? Because Kevin Garnett was the poster guy for a long time of, oh, he can't win. He's not a winner in the playoffs. And, of course, that was all nonsense. It was nonsense the whole time. He was an incredible winner. And then he goes to Boston and he wins. Oh, oh Kevin Garnett's a winner. Um, and then and similarly, Kobe, you know, probably everyone knows the story about how Kobe and his agent manipulated their way to Los Angeles by discouraging the Nets most notably, but other teams like, no, we don't draft this guy. He's going to play in Italy. He's going to play overseas, like all these bogus bluffs. <laughs> so the Lakers could pull this incredible coup, trade Vlade Divac, get Kobe, sign Shaq in the same summer. So right away, Kobe is set up to be on a championship contending team for essentially the entirety of his career where Kevin Garnett is toiling in Minnesota until, you know, they finally break through in 2004, make the conference finals. Sam Cassell gets her KG's playing freaking point guard in that series. And they, you know, they bow out and then that's kind of it for him in Minnesota. But it's always been, I mean, he's right behind Duncan and scoring 26,000 some points. He's in the conversation for greatest defensive player ever. And he is a champion too. And, and an MVP too. And a defensive player of the year. One of five guys in the league to win both an MVP and defensive player of the year award. And yeah, his stats, his sort of triple double stats, the 25,000 point threshold, the 10,000 rebound threshold, the 5,000 assist threshold. He's crossed all of them. Only two other guys have done that. Kareem and Carl Malone. It speaks to how he filled up the stat sheet, but stats are one thing. When you go watch old Garnett footage, it's just, he was, ahead of his time in so many ways, Zach. I mean, obviously, he's a two-way player. He could have played in this era. He would have thrived in this era. He would have been a great three-point shooter if he they would have. Up. They would have made him shoot three. Now it would, have been, it would be no choice. It would be like, dude, I know you're steadfast about the long two. I know you are a different dude and you scare me a little bit, but you're shooting threes. <laughs> like, <laughs> And he would have done it since high school, and he would have been great. Because um, when you look at that old footage of Minnesota-era Garnett, I'm struck by how he moved like a guard and how comfortable he was near the elbows, dribbling, posting up. He could do it all. And, of course, the thing we highlight in in the piece is his feathery touch as a shooter. And Yes, his range didn't extend beyond the line, but he still demonstrated that a giant athletic NBA player could kill you with a jump shot. Um, and that became the vital weapon in the Boston era on the offensive end were those pick-and-pop plays, how he would space the floor for those Celtic teams, how he would set screens for Rondo or Pierce, open up the lane for those guys, but then also be a legitimate threat to knock down one of those reliable, stretchy jump shots that have come in so common in today's NBA. But, man, when he came into the league, that wasn't a thing. Uh, and now it's a thing, and he's one of the prototypes in the, in the world of stretch bigs. 
It's funny you mentioned the prep to pro thing and how revolutionary that was and, and how it will come back. I, I was you know, this morning before we did this, I was looking back over at Jonathan Abrams, our, our old Grantland colleague, oh. uh, his book, Boys to Boys Among Men. I was going to say Boys to Men, which is a uh, <laughs> Motown. Philly. A, yeah, uh, is not what the, the name of the book is. Um, Boys <laughs> Among Men about the prep to pro uh, generation. And a lot of it is about KG. And to your point, um, everyone should read this book. It's a wonderful book. But the Wizards had the fourth pick in that draft. They pick Rasheed Wallace. Great, great pick. Fine, whatever. Um, Abe Poland, you know, according to Jonathan's re- reporting in this book, basically told the the personnel people on the on the now Bullets back then, we don't want to take a high school kid. Like, I know you love this kid. I, I just do me a favor. Don't take a high school. Don't take a high school kid. Isaiah Thomas was running the Raptors then. They had the seventh pick. Garnett is picked fifth by Minnesota. And Isaiah Thomas and Kevin McHale are apparently close friends. Isaiah called, according to John, they're interviewed in the book. Isaiah called Kevin McHale before the draft and said, whatever you're hearing about Kevin, don't believe it. If you don't take him at five, I'm definitely taking him. What you're seeing in him is all true. What you're hearing about him, none of it is true. So Isaiah is basically telegraphing, I'm taking him seven. If you don't take him five, you should take him. And Isaiah then tells Abrams to the point about how unusual it was and how much skepticism there was about Kevin Garnett coming out of high school. Isaiah Thomas, who wants Kevin Garnett badly, badly, tells Jonathan Abrams, if we had picked him, we would have kept him home on road trips because we wanted him to keep going to classes at local universities to sort of continue educating himself. We didn't want him to be in like a road trip NBA environment all the time. We would have had a whole program around him. Like, and this is the guy who wanted to draft him seven. <laughs> It goes to show how, how our attitudes have changed. When you, when you see drastic changes in attitudes like that, it's, it's instructive to look back at why they changed. And, and both Kevin and Kobe changed it. Now, there were failures, Zach. That era oh, was for full sure. of, of guys that were not ready. Um, and when we're sitting here on Hall of Fame weekend, we have the selection bias. Hey, we're going to talk about the two guys. That we're not talking about Lenny problem. Cook, who's right. also a part of Jonathan Abrams' book. Kwame Brown. We're not talking about these guys uh, that didn't make the Hall of Fame. Uh, but that said, props to Kevin Garnett. Uh, anything is possible, Zach Lowe. And his career demonstrated that. And you mentioned the Minnesota thing. That's a great point. I mean, that franchise, now in new ownership hands, it looks like. But that franchise has, has not been very good. Um, and I don't care if you're Tim Duncan or if you're Zion Williamson or if you're LeBron James, you can, in some cases, only go as far as your organization will take you. And I think you made an incredible point about that with Kevin Garnett. Not only does he go to the Minnesota Timberwolves, but look at the Western Conference that he was trying to compete with. When he well, did that's, first- that's the thing. You know, there's this idea that, well, he just didn't go anywhere with the Minnesota Timberwolves. I think it's it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. They made the playoffs regularly. And in one year where it all kind of came together with Cassell and Sprewell until they got hurt, they made the conference finals in a heavyweight conference. And if, if people want to go back and watch one prime Minnesota KG game, game seven against the Kings, who were still good in 2004, in the second round in Minnesota. Now the Kings, maybe Minnesota should have won that series more easily. I don't know. But anyway, game seven, KG goes for 32, 21, four steals, five blocks on 12 of 23 shooting and a bunch of free throws. Incredible all-around game. Does everything for them. And – you know, and then you have the sort of the other what if of KG, and it's one of those. You know, like this year, 
the injury that I think I will remember exactly where I was, where, where I learned about it was Jamal Murray, because you uh-huh. had a sense of Denver was coming together. This was going to be a really interesting team. I might have picked, I might, if they got the yeah. third seed, they probably would have been my pick to win the West, frankly. 2009, I remember exactly where I was when KG went up yep. for an alley-oop in Utah and came down holding his right leg. That Celtics team was the best team in the league, and they were the favorites to win the title. And all of their legacies look different if KG stays healthy. But he, he didn't stay healthy, and frankly, that's baked into trading a bunch of young guys and picks for a 31-year-old or whatever he was with a lot of mileage. Like that's not It's not just complete bad luck. It's sort of that chance is baked into that team construction. Yeah, and they took a risk on Garnett. They sent away a lot, and they brought him in, and he, they got the one title. They got the one title, and then the injuries started. And then there was, the, I think, the 2010 injury in the play, in the finals with Perk, I think it was. And Perk gets hurt in 2010. Yeah, they could have won three in a row, but they didn't. And injuries are a fact of life in this league. It's sad. Uh, it, it's the Nuggets story, as you alluded to right now. But Boston got the championship. They were rewarded with that big move, and it's – an iconic team that first year they were together and they probably should have won a second one if that didn't have the orthopedic nightmare that, that happened. Uh, but that's common in the NBA is as heartbreaking as it is, but you know what? <clears throat> one of the cool things about this year's season, Zach, is that the two top MVP candidates are both centers. Um, and here we are talking about Garnett and his legacy when the MVP is a power forward. Uh, big men are starting to be relevant again, and you brought you brought up Denver. Jokic is going to win the MVP, and 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 Embiid is going to be second. And we haven't seen a one-two finish with centers since you know we were kids, um, and and maybe before that. So I I think it's interesting in the context of what Garnett brought because small ball was always a misnomer. What we're really seeing in the NBA right now is skill ball. Yep, and Garnett was a perfect example of how big players can still thrive in today's NBA, but there's just no tolerance for plotting slow, limited skill players anymore. You have to bring it. You have to pass, dribble, shoot, uh, play defense. Uh, you have to be a, the equivalent of a five-tool baseball player in basketball if you want to be a big player, if you want to be any player anymore. And Kevin Garnett set that up, and now look at us. We have Jokic and Embiid, two of the biggest skill players uh, and and they can do it all, just like Garnett. I think that they are going to finish one, too, and I don't think it's going to be close. I think Jokic will get most of the first-place votes, and Embiid will get most of the second-place votes, and Embiid will get the first-place votes that Jokic doesn't get, and Jokic will get the second-place votes that Embiid doesn't get because he gets first-place votes. Um, yeah, now, KG played some five. He didn't like to play five. Played some five. Boston had that killer small ball lineup where they would put Eddie House in and shift KG to five. Didn't like to play five. Today he'd play more five, and he'd be fine with it because that's how you would win. But he could—he was such a good jump shooter that you could play him at four even today. And it was—it was. I mean, that's that's essentially what the Lakers are doing with Anthony Davis. Is we're going to bet on size and wingspan, and and we're going to base our identity around when you get into the lane, when you beat our first layer of defense. There's just big arms everywhere because we have Anthony Davis and a center on the floor. And that's what KG was at the four. A great, a much better jump shooter even than Anthony Davis. That's what he was. Um, an incredible, incredible player. Let's talk about Kobe briefly. I mean, we've obviously talked a lot about Kobe since the tragedy last year. Um, you wrote about you wrote about his Phoenix shot. Why did you pick that shot? And again, more beautiful animation on this shot. Yeah, shout out to Walker TKL. But uh if there's one play to me that epitomizes Kobe Bryant, it is this play. 
those of you who remember it, 2006 playoffs against the Suns, um, jump ball, Luke Walton tips it to Kobe. He gets it beyond midcourt on the wrong side of midcourt and just proceeds to dribble into a cold-blooded <laughs> elbow jumper, weaves his way through the entire Suns defense. Forget it was Boris Diaw, Raja Bell. Uh, he shoots it over them and just wins the game. And to me, it's a special moment for Kobe because it captures a few things that make him super special. Obviously, the clutch gene, which he had uh, pretty well. And then he has th- this beautiful unassisted mid-range jumper uh, that he could get to almost any time he won. He was the greatest mid-range scorer between Jordan and now. Uh, he-, he gets that shot whenever, wherever he wants, and he can sink it. Uh, I talked to Chip England, um, a Spurs shooting coach, about Kobe a few months ago for a story. And, you know, he that, that was the mechanical model they used when they were developing Kawhi Leonard, Zach. And uh, people don't realize how good of a shooter mechanically Kobe was. And, yes, that's really stats- That's really interesting you say that because I, I, I don't think I knew that necessarily. And you see the similarities in terms of their release, their hands, their feet, and the line drive trajectory a little bit, right? Yeah. And it's a player that Kawhi obviously related to. So Kawhi gets drafted, and we have a lockout and the Spurs can't get their hands on him in the practice gym. So I think Chip tells the story they had two or three hours one day, and they just Chip was like, well, what can I do? Oh, I'll give him a role model to look at and watch this Kobe film. Um, and, you know, remember, Kawhi could not shoot the ball very well when he came in. and neither That's could. why he was available at number 15 <laughs> for one of the greatest trades in the history of basketball, which uh, went haywire a few years later, but worked out quite well. But I think you're, the, the Kobe point is when you study efficiency stats like me and you get seduced by numbers like the Joe Ingles numbers, for instance, that we might talk about in a minute, uh, if you get seduced by the numbers, efficiency, 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 you might not find who is the actual best shooter from a mechanical point of view in the league because what Kobe did was take incredibly difficult shots. Some of them were ill-advised, okay? But when he got into his shot, his mechanics were impeccable. Uh, and he was able to make those very difficult shots because of those mechanics and his launch mechanics and specifically were the things that, that he and Chip were – Chip was very obsessed with getting Kawhi to, to learn. So I think when I think of that play in Phoenix, it captures a lot of what makes Kobe special. Obviously, there's the clutch thing, but the ability to dribble into and create your own shot – you know, Kawhi's biggest shot is similar in his history, dribbling into a crazy mid-range shot over a very big or large defender who knows you're going to shoot it and making it. Um, there are a million Kobe plays that we can remember, but that one sticks out. Another person who brought that exact play up to me a few years ago is Chris Paul, today's best elbow shooter, Zach Lowe. And he told the story about how that shot affected him uh, and how he he remembered watching that play and thinking Kobe knew – he kept his head down and was going to the right elbow. He was looking at the floor, looking for the place he wanted to shoot from, and picked it out. And so that play has always stuck out with me because it stuck out with Chris. Uh, and Kobe's jump shot has always stuck out with me because it stuck out with Chip and, and Kawhi. So, yeah, I picked that play uh, for a couple of reasons there. I think we've all gone down Kobe rabbit holes, Kobe YouTube rabbit holes in the last year and a half or whatever it's been. Um. And, it, it, you know, I, I certainly have watching old Kobe playoff games. And what sticks out more than the sh- as much as the shot making and whatever is just I don't know if any player 
was more skilled ever than Kobe, just in terms of every little mini skill within a mini skill. Footwork is obviously famous, but cutting, the timing of his cuts, a fake cut one way, then the real cut in a way that just completely threw the defense off balance. The shoulder fakes, the head fakes, the spins, the the knack, the knack for rebounding. Just like he was an underrated offense. A lot of his biggest, it's not a lot, but a few of his biggest postseason plays are offensive rebounds, including one against the Spurs. Um, and it, just the knack of timing for all that one-handed tippins, just every little skill he put in the work to be good at it, to be great at it. Just you know, moving into you know left left elbow to right elbow, moving horizontally into the catch, turning in midair to shoot that jump shot. He looked like Roger Federer doing that. How smooth he was! Just the level of skill was unbelievable all around and that and that sort of you just kind of appreciate that most of all when you look back yeah i think you're right and the smoothness i didn't put that in the piece but i wish i had that guy was smooth and poised no he looked like he was, was floating he looks like he's he yeah. looks like he's one of those guys who runs and it's like are his feet even hitting the ground effortless movement in big moments against incredible defenders and you know one of the things we lost last year was Kobe the mentor uh Kobe the coach um he had hacks into every aspect of basketball and and you know he unlike Tim was willing to share that uh and willing to open up about that and you know that's why he had become a mentor to so many of the games emerging superstars and and that that exact thing is 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 part of the tragedy obviously Kobe the mentor uh, going away. But you know what? I love what you said. He could do it all and did do it all and wasn't afraid to do it all on the hugest stages. He wanted the ball more than anybody since Jordan, you know, in those moments. Um, and was willing to get dirty. He's willing to get di- not dirty like dirty plays, just dirty like little elbow into your chest and I'll cut a little like a hard box out for an offensive rebound. I'll, I'll shove off of you and pop out it, like on a, on a lower historical scale. The player that pops into my head right now, currently that reminds me of that is Jimmy Butler. I feel like mm-hmm. that's the underappreciated part of Jimmy Butler's game is he's a really physical cutter. He has really good timing. He just, ha- he ha- he's a good bank shooter uh, from the left block, yes. particularly. He has just good little elbow, shoulder, tough rebounding, gritty plays. Like he's put in a lot more skill work on non glamour skills than, than people give him credit for. They obviously not on Kobe's level historically, but it just popped into my head. Yeah. He had the, it, they both have the eye of the tiger, too. There's something about it, you know, whether it's the Minnesota practice story that's now legendary with Jimmy or, uh, you know, maybe who was the guy who like, pretended he was going to throw the ball in Kobe's face. Was it Matt Barnes? Matt Barnes, yeah. Yeah, at that moment with Kobe, <laughs> that's just like you have to you have to that's, account for that moment too. Just like who, psycho. If you psycho. if Matt Barnes did that to me, <laughs> I would have fallen on the floor. Like I like I, I don't know how do you not even move? If, for those of you who don't know what we're talking about, look it up. Matt Barnes throwing the ball or acting like he's going to throw the ball into Kobe Bryant's face. From like a foot away. Unrehearsed, Kobe just stares at him like he's uh, one of those royal guards in England. He cannot be faced. And it just speaks volumes about the guy that we're talking about here that the stats will never capture. But you're right. I love the Jimmy comp because both of these guys have that intensity. They're not afraid to get dirty. They're not afraid. If you want to fight, they'll go with you. Uh, But, dude, nobody is going to out-intensity Kobe Bryant 
in those moments. Uh, and he, there's so many clips, but for me, that Matt Barnes one really captures a lot of that too. Give me your uh, rapid fire awards pick before we before we let you go. We'll do the six individual awards because those are those are out for me today. We'll see how many we agree on. MVP. You got to go, Jokic. I think there's a case for Embiid. Um, the, the the case for Embiid is is really damaged by availability, though. Um, and I can go into to more detail there, but it's Jokic's award. Jokic is the MVP. My my pick as well. Um, uh, rookie of the year. This is the this is this is the toughest one. This year sucks. I mean, in a way, and I'm giving it to Ball though. Uh, he blew my mind. He's got the best ceiling, and uh, I love Halliburton. Um, Ant Edwards comes on, but I'm giving it to Lamelo. You know, he he missed a lot of games, but that's the player I'd be comfortable with having this award in ten years. I went Lamelo, and it's interesting because I wrote this today. I heard from people who thought. Who, who were Lamelo backers and Edwards backers. And a lot of those people said, well, it's a blowout. It's, a, it's not even close. It's not even a close race. My gosh, you would know. And I'd be like, okay, well, I don't think it's a blowout. The advanced <laughs> stats suggest it's a blowout for Lamelo. Like Anthony Edwards' advanced stats are terrible. But that's because he was taking a lot of shots as a rookie on a team that for a lot of games didn't have Carl Anthony Towns or D'Angelo Russell. What Anthony Edwards has done, I didn't vote for him. I voted him too. What Anthony Edwards has done in the last 35 games, 23 a game on 53% shooting, the best defenders on the other team are guarding him. So you can tell the coaches and the other players respect him. And the Wolves have been almost a 500 team. And they're not almost. They're 15 and 20, I think, in their last 35 games. But they're a real team. They're a competitive team. This isn't BS number getting. I think it's real. I think he's really good. But I think for the full totality of the NBA season, despite the minutes deficit, LaMelo ball has been a little bit better. Um, Yeah, yeah, I I got, you know, Chris Finch deserves some credit here. I think I put out a graphic on Twitter and Instagram the other day that showed which team's net rating had changed the most since the all-star break. And Chris Finch and the Timberwolves were second in that. They had the second biggest uptick behind Dallas and they've had a coaching change, and Anthony Edwards has, has woken up. And it's it's not uncommon for a rookie scorer to be very inefficient. See LeBron James rookie year. Um, it's not it, it, it's not un, un, unreasonable. Uh, that said, I'm with you, Lamelo. They got a playoff team. That's something the other guys can't say. A play-in uh, team. You play don't make the play. Like you don't make the play. We're not counting play-in losers uh, as playoff teams because they go in the lottery. Okay, really quick, coach of the year. Coach of the Year, I think we agree on this. It's my friend Monty Williams, but this is one of the most interesting ones. I went Monty over Tibbs. I, I think you can go either either way, and there's a, there's a million good candidates. Yes, there are a million. That's what I would say. Quinn Snyder, I have to give some love. Quinn to was third on my ballot too, but yeah. you can go. I mean, I named them all in, in my in. But my nobody thing. expected the Suns here. That's the reason. Um, uh, most improved player. That's easy. Uh, you know, I'm here in New York City, and it's the man taking New York City by storm. Uh, and isolating his way into the conversation of one of the great Eastern Conference uh, stories of the season, Julius Randle. Agreed. Defensive player of the year? I'm a big center guy here, so I'm going Gobert. Uh, I I do love Ben Simmons, and I have an interesting anecdote, but who do you have? I had Gobert. I don't want to belabor it because I hold a real column about it. I get why people think Gobert is – some people think Gobert is a little overrated as a defender, that he's not – 
as matchup proof in the playoffs as Ben Simmons or Draymond Green is. But I think for the regular season, 82 games, it's Gobert. And I had, interestingly, I think I had I had Draymond Green second. I don't think a lot of people have him that high and S- Simmons third. I think Draymond has been almost every bit as good defensively as he was in his prime. <laughs> and talk about a leader. He's a teacher out there for that team right now. You know, there was a time when it was Clay Thompson, Andre Iguodala out there, uh, and you didn't have to do a lot of teaching. Uh, but with this group of guys on the defensive end, Draymond deserves a lot of credit. When he was not playing early in the season, they were a tire fire on the defensive end of the court. Uh, and there were times of the season where you would chart their defense as, as number one or two in the entire NBA after Draymond started playing. They're not going to end up there. But yeah, always in the conversation. And if this is a playoff award, which it's not, the Rudy Gobert argument is fair. Uh <laughs> There's been playoff series where he hasn't been able to, to be out there, um, and, and that's something to watch as we go in. But this is a regular season award, and when you look at the stats, especially the on-off stats, Rudy Gobert's numbers just jump off the page at you. Six man. Oh, no, you had a Simmons anecdote. What's your Simmons anecdote? Uh, so my first game of the year, I don't know. if you Have you been to an NBA game yet this year? Nope. Okay, I went to my first one like last weekend in San Antonio. I drove from Austin down to see because I wanted to see Embiid. And I was struck at just how large the Philadelphia 76ers defense was. Like, you look out there, it's Ben Simmons, it's Thibel at times, it is Danny Green, it is Tobias Harris, and it's Joel Embiid. And you're just, and I'm loving my Spurs, and I'm like, uh, who do we pick on here? Uh, this, <laughs> this, is, this is not a team that's going to go easy in the playoffs. This Six man. Six man, but Ben Simmons deserves some love. Jordan Clarkson, he's the classic six man of the year. Ooh, we disagree. I went Ingles. I, I, I can't say anything bad about Joe Ingles, but for yes, me, yes, you Clarkson, can. I would encourage you to say something bad about Joe Ingles because he'll get mad at you and tweet at you, and it'll be a whole thing, and it'll be fun. I don't want him mad at me. I, I'll say, I'll say this though about Clarkson, uh, San Antonio's own. No, I will say that Clarkson. Goes, he fits that Vinny Microwave Johnson vibe, the, the, the Lou Williams vibe, um, the Manu Ginobili vibe. You come off the bench and you stir the pot and you, you're a problem. And that's a super important thing, both in the regular season and the playoffs. He can, he can really change the vibe of a jazz game just by coming in. I voted him second. No problem with him winning. I just voted him second. I voted Tim Hardaway Jr. third. All right. Uh, Mr. Goldsberry, you have work to do. I have work to do. Your column is on ESPN today on these three wonderful Hall of Famers. Congratulations to all the Hall of Famers, including our own Mike Breen and Michael Wilbon, getting the Kurt Gowdy Award. Two incredible people and incredible colleagues. Mr. Goldsberry, enjoy your day. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Zach. Thank you. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.